We often discuss the importance of company culture in terms of an image, a feeling, or a cool atmosphere. However, what happens when we think about it in a tactical sense, at the ground level, within teams, when high stakes are on the line? In this episode, I speak to Eric Mineo and Alexis Brandolini, co-founders of the Alpha Echo Project, about what they've learned about teamwork from an elite army unit, the importance of strong trust within teams, and why understanding individual responsibilities is critical when achieving important goals. And when bullets and bombs are flying, that he knows my job and what I'm going to do, and that I know he knows his job and what's to do. And more importantly, that everyone to the left and to the right of us understands their job. Eric Mineo is a reserve duty infantry officer who holds widespread experience in asymmetric warfare, counterinsurgency, and special operations force missions in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And Alexis Brandolini is an expert in strategic planning and advertising, has worked with numerous brands, teams, and leaders, and is a recipient of the Jade Chiat Gold Award for strategic planning and branding. So, ready to dive into what an elite Army division can teach us about effective teams? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Eric and Alexis, thank you for joining me. Good morning. Good morning, Rebecca. Thank you for having us. Good morning. Yeah, we're recording on a Friday, so today is a pretty good day. I'm looking at a good weekend this weekend to hopefully have some fun and some relaxation as one of those things we all need, I think, on the weekends. So I'm really excited to talk to the both of you today because what you're doing is a super interesting thing called the Alpha Echo Project, uh, which really is a great way for you to bring in your extensive uh, and interesting military background uh, into helping teams thrive. And as we know, given our disrupted world today, uh, leaders often struggle with trying to figure out how to bring their teams together, especially under increasing demands, crazy distractions that are happening out in the world and so forth. So let's start with talking about some of the keys to connecting teams together who are under a lot of pressure. Yeah, I think that's that's a great foundation to have this conversation from. And when we look at teams, I think it's important to really take it one step further and, and scratch the surface and go, what are the teams of teams? And what's the culture within those small teams of teams? And really, how do you develop and amplify those subcultures that are aligned with your greater organizational culture? And I think that's where our experience in the military, and specifically in, in small unit tactics, as a platoon leader and ground force commander in both Iraq and Afghanistan, when you lead teams of teams and small unit teams uh, and you rely on each other for survival, there are changes in your perspective. There are changes in your mindset. And frankly, there are changes in how you approach the rest of your life after you experience that. And so through feeling the, the empowerment of a team, I say team, high-performing teams are addictive. And I look forward to sharing that addiction with our with our clients and our people and our folks out there. Because uh, if you've been a part of a high-performing team, you don't really accept anything else moving forward. And what I've spent a lot of time with Alexis doing is reflecting and refining the how to build and incorporate these small team of teams within the company and organization. 
Yeah, one of the things you kind of weaved in there, or at least alluded to a little bit, is bringing teams together and focusing a lot on human connection. And um, I think it's always really fascinating to talk about how your military background brought the importance of human connection to the forefront, because, of course, you depend on one another to keep each other alive. There's a different level of connection that you start to build with others around you when you're working in a military unit. And let's talk about the importance of that strength of human connection and how teams can try to generate that within their own environment. Yeah, I think, I mean, an easy statement that that's taken a lot of reflection is culture is a team fight. And how do you leverage and mobilize your team to do that? And I think the first step in applying this is how do you get your team members to feel safe? And how do you foster trust among you? And I think that that's your step one. And those are your daily interactions. Those are things that happen in and around the office when you break bread together, eating lunch or perhaps a dinner or maybe even a happy hour, those little small nuances day in and day out, that, that's putting cash in the bank. And that's putting deposits in there for a rainy day that you may not know when it's going to hit. And so those are the, the little things that the team does on a daily basis. You have each other's back. I mean, if, if, if someone forgets something, you cover for each other. You don't you know, highlight it and spotlight it and say, oh, well, I'm here and he's not. I mean, that becomes like a, a fun cultural thing within some of the army units. These guys would cover each, for each other to like the nth degree where you have to say, okay, guys, like, let's not be dishonorable here. It's, you know, kind of the joke's over. But the analysis there is the extent in which they're willing to sacrifice for each other, the risk that they're willing to assume in defense of their brother and teammate. I mean, that, that's a powerful reminder to be constantly around. And that's what I had the benefit of doing. I graduated and commissioned from West Point in 2005. And that's when Iraq was at its peak climax of the downslide and Afghanistan had no strategy and we were surging there. And I was one of the, you know, graduating class of what Time Magazine would call the class of 9-11. And my graduation present was a 15-month deployment to Afghanistan with a pregnant wife uh, at home and 15 months later to go clean up Afghanistan, still with no strategy. So how do you do more with less? And I think that's forged in fire by way of these experiences. Yeah, that is fascinating. Um, and I think it really lets people think differently about how important their teammates are around them, how important it is to come together to achieve amazing, audacious, um, impactful goals. Different, of course, when you're in the forefront of a fight. But certainly, I think a lot of healthcare workers today could probably relate to a lot of the, what you're talking about because you need one another to sometimes save other people's lives as well. Tremendously important with huge consequences if you don't get it right. So I'm wondering too, Alexis, based on your background in leadership and marketing and so forth, you know, when you came together with Eric to create this program, what were some of the integral parts that brought the two of you together so you could align on this mission of really empowering leadership to build better teams? It's a great question. Eric was working in a unit in the army called the Asymmetric Warfare Group, where they taught this kind of team dynamics practice, like allowing teams to really get in and practice being vulnerable with one another. And at the same time, I was working on a brand research project for a large global insurance company. And the research that I was finding on the inside there, and you interview all the people in the company from the executives all the way down to the lower level employees of every division, and um, really finding that people are feeling disenfranchised is a good way to put it. I would say rather non-committed, really didn't care. And they had long-term employees. 
but they had initiative fatigue, I would call it, where the management was continuously trying to kind of like activate the group and they just were falling flat over and over again. So they were looking into doing some advertising. And, and the question was, why are you doing advertising spend outward when you have this cultural issue inside? And especially for a, a company with sales going on where they have sales calls going on from the very people sitting in the seats there. So while I'm learning about the cultural stuff that Eric was doing with his team in, in the asymmetric warfare group in the army, I'm sitting here going, I see a direct connection to fixing or at least engaging with the internal brand, the culture within. And it was really like, oh my gosh, I wish we could do that work here right now. And that was really the impetus for us starting this. And uh, a lot of the guys that were working there, the, the other teammates that we have that were all dedicated to, hey, when we get out of the army, we want to do this for, for corporate America. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a great connection. And I know the three of us have had this conversation about people don't always see the military as being you know, this human connection type organization. But the reality is, is the connections and the lessons and leadership and team dynamics that come out of the military are extraordinarily impactful to organizations when they're able to apply them. And I think one of the problems that organizations face, or maybe one of the traps they fall into, is talking a whole lot about their company culture, their corporate culture, sometimes the pool tables and foosball tables and, and so forth. But uh, the reality is, is a lot of times it really does come down to the ground level teams and how they work well together. So how do you take an organization to think differently about their culture at the ground level versus all of the focus happening and, you know, from a company culture perspective? Well, I think based on the experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, I'll use that example again, that there was a international strategy, right? We had a national strategy. The four-star generals were, were commanding this counterinsurgency fight and what they found extremely quickly and they found out through the loss of, of soldiers' lives and the loss of, of soldiers' survivability that they can't manage nor lead a military to success and mission accomplishment by way of policies and by way of procedures. And I credit a lot of good general officers, but I'll, I'll cite General McChrystal because I did serve under him. And what he empowered was a transition and a transformation within the military industrial complex. And he empowered the principle of mission command and what we call the team of teams. And so at the lowest possible level of a assault element on the ground, you had platoon leaders and ground force commanders now empowered to conduct the fight as they needed to, because we were aligned with the strategic message of the counterinsurgency, but we were allowed to engage with the population in a multitude of ways. And it wasn't just dropping bombs. Far from that. It was engaging with the population, engaging with the people and empowering the people to take ownership of their land and of their communities and of their police force. And that was only done at the ground tactical level. And so that's what I'll classify as, you know, the subculture conversation. And, and I say for the, the greater corporate audience who is listening, I think you got to have the strategy from the top and the executives and the leadership have to be stewards and ambassadors for the vision and for the culture. And that needs to be empowered and unleashed at the smallest possible level within your divisions and departments. And most importantly, to the left and to the right of you. You can't have these silos that go up and down reporting straight up and down. You have to go left, right, up and down. And so what does that cultural framework look like? 
but more critically is below the surface, what's the subculture framework look like within the organizations? And I think just having these conversations are going to be a step in the right direction for people to look at a lower level of, of leadership and development at your tactical leaders. Oh, absolutely. And I think it also gives this greater opportunity for every member of every team to get involved and the importance of the involvement of every member of every team and also giving some level of accountability to those people to execute. Because one of the things that we talked about previously is the importance of accountability, the importance of people stepping up and doing their job, um, sometimes without being told, um, sometimes just really understanding what they're responsible for in the pursuit of a greater goal. And I'm wondering, too, uh, what are the, some of the challenges that you have seen or that either one of you have seen as you've worked with companies and trying to get them to bring their people with and really engage all team members to achieve those goals by bringing forth what's important for every team member to achieve? Yeah, I'll just hop in. Uh, yesterday, we were doing a um, virtual training session with a group, and we had done one session already with them that was more activating them, inspiring and motivating them to think of themselves as a team. And we had done some feedback at the beginning of the second session just yesterday. And one of the feedback pieces was that you forget that your coworkers are a team. And that was a really wonderful thing, I think, for the group themselves to hear. And it was it was just one of those moments where you realize that you do have to work on these things, especially now in COVID. And we realize like empowerment and all of these things that happen around initiative and accountability, it happens in the small moments. It happens in like those interactions together, those those chemistry kind of things. And uh, the things that will foster that feeling of safe and that culture that you kind of have a character now, they happen in those small moments. And that is like a dedicated team time. So I think that importance of involvement and having accountability, not being like to Eric's point by policy, but by caring for one another, that gets in there. And then also just having some left and right limits and the way that we try to push that forth beyond duties, roles, and responsibilities is what and Eric bullets really and presents bombs are flying, from that an infantry. He knows my job and what I'm going to do. And that I know he knows his job and what's to do. Where you have more to importantly, that under everyone pressure to the left and to the right of us understands their job. Is the five rules. And I'll hand off to him so he can talk a little bit more about it because he just brings more life to it. And uh, yeah, I think that that's the, that initiative and accountability that it brings. After I went to Ranger Regiment Assessment and Selection, and was very fortunate to be accepted into the 1st Ranger Battalion. And once I earned a spot as a platoon leader, my very, very experienced platoon sergeant, so he would be my my leadership counterpart for a platoon of 38 Airborne Rangers. And he had, at that point, had upwards of 15 deployments. I had one. And we sat down, and the first conversation we had was duties, roles, and responsibilities. And we leveled all communications in the playing field in a couple hours behind a closed door. And we said, how do we want to operate? And I said, well, how do you operate? How are you already functioning? And how do I snap into that and enhance that? And from that conversation, willingness to adapt to a new culture and to bring what I experienced to the fight to add to it, not to detract or to, to dominate, but it was how do we have this shared mission and this shared understanding, and more importantly, an awareness of each other, that when we go out into a high-risk mission, and when bullets and bombs are flying, 
that he knows my job and what I'm going to do and that I know he knows his job and what's to do. And more importantly, that everyone to the left and to the right of us understands their job. And what Alexis alluded to, I'll, I'll go over what we call the five rules. And these five rules came from uh, training in a very chaotic place called a shoot house. I've shared these rules to sports teams, to executive financial teams, to corporate America. And these five rules can sound aggressive at first, but when you peel them back and you think about them and you sit with them, they have a powerful effect. And so rule number one, everything is your responsibility. Number two, save who needs to be saved. Number three, kill what needs to be killed. Number four, and arguably the crowd favorite, no one is coming to save you. And five, always be working. And those five rules became a subcultural underpinning of how we conducted ourselves. We still had a mission to complete and we still had orders to fulfill, but that was a cultural underpinning that when we're out on target or when we're out on training or we're out in town, at any given time, we knew that this was our mental algorithm. These five rules, these five principles were going through any one of our heads. So at any moment in time, anyone would be empowered to act and to step up or to save someone. I'll let, you, you know, I'll let you just sit with those, those five rules for a second because uh, it's kind of a, a bit. But what those five rules allowed us to do was flip a paradigm from a fear of risk, and you say risk aversion, to risk adaptation and risk innovation, where we know we have to go to the target and get a very bad person who doesn't want to be caught. And when you have that compelling mission that you're going to go do this very dangerous thing, you do a lot of reflection and training on how to make sure that you are the best possible version of yourself, but not for yourself, but for the man or woman to the left and to the right of you. And that compelling component and really love of your brother on that team is, is something, it's a sacred bond that you just are unwilling to sacrifice. It's not negotiable. Yeah, I think that I'll add to that. Personally, for me, when I started to imbue these in my life, it was empowering. It for sure does not leave you feeling nothing. <laughs> you definitely have feelings of pressure. But I think that those are the rules of life in a way that life isn't always going to be rational. Life isn't going to hand always to you the things that should should be in the right order. And when it doesn't do that for you, these things are the things you already have prepared to live by and activate in those moments. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. And I think what's one of the things too that teams should think about, or like just based on human behavior and in team engagement, one of the things that can bring teams together is fighting towards a common enemy. And if you do a really good job of understanding who that enemy is or what that enemy is, teams do a great job of coming together and trying to defeat that enemy and really have a sense of purpose around the importance of mitigating that risk in front of them, whatever it might be. It could be inefficiency in your organization, or it could be a you know competitor, or it might even just be external forces coming towards your organization. You need to shift in order to adjust to those external forces, such as maybe a global pandemic. Uh, but people need to come together and come up with those solutions. And, and like you had both mentioned, if everyone understands what the ultimate goal is and are very laser focused on that goal, they'll be able to bring in their own innovative solutions to be able to um, apply to that goal. Or if it is defeating a common enemy, however it's defined in that context, what can they do in that moment to help achieve the goal for the team, for the organization? And it's not about what they're doing for themselves, for their individual goals, but rather for the greater good. 
Yeah, I'll say that um, in reflecting on some of the stories that Eric has told me, that common enemy is is one thing. I remember at fighting level, for my brothers, and I think that uh, you know when you're talking about or not trying to have people Al-Qaeda. bring their innovative solutions to the table, I think that oftentimes it's yes, the strategic enemy has been stated, but what's what are people seeing on the ground level? Are they are they encouraged to bring up what they are seeing from their vantage point? Are they allowed to bring those things to the table even when? you know, you're on your average week kind of status of how business is rolling. And I use this example of Eric on the ground in Afghanistan, you know, needing to go chase after somebody, like physically go chase after somebody. And it's like, that's not necessarily what we do. But like in the moment, it was like, there was an actual shifting of the strategy of the enemy and the way that we engage with them. And that was happening in the moment. So allowing the people that are on the ground to bring to the higher leadership what they're seeing. So in case that enemy needs to be redefined at any time, that that's, you know, constantly welcomed conversation from the ground level. Uh, Is there anything you have for? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I'll say how you do anything is how you do everything as a standard of practice and kind of a cultural mantra as well. And in reflection of a, and this is not to brag at all, sharing my stories is a, is a difficult thing, but in what I remember of my combat stories, it's not the enemy, it's the memories of my brothers. And it's not that they've, they've passed or fallen, uh, some have, but I remember fighting for my brothers, not fighting against the Taliban or not fighting against Al-Qaeda. And I'm from Long Island, and I was a freshman in college when, when 9-11 occurred, which is why we were called the class of 9-11 by Time Magazine. And frankly, I had friends who passed away that day, and I had friends whose parents were killed that day. And that solidifies and galvanizes your why, and which is what I'm sharing. And so when you're in these teams, that why, your why factor, when you have your individual why as a, as a strong motivator, and then you have a collective shared why you're there, and we're there for each other. We, we volunteered to be here for each other to complete this mission. And that is the, the driving factor that allows these small teams to complete impossible tasks, to have you know movies constructed after them because they're so inspiring. How did these things happen? How did these people overcome these odds? And that love for each other is a driving factor of that brotherhood that you don't want to pierce uh, the, the veil of that brotherhood. And it's a compelling thing to be a part of. And that's why I say these high-performing teams are addictive once you experience them because someone willing to sacrifice for you is a powerful thing. Someone willing to give you their last piece of bread is a powerful thing. Someone giving you water out of their camelback in your 140 degree weather in the middle of Afghanistan in the summer. These are things that you don't forget, especially when the chips are down. Yeah, I think with the current pandemic, you know, everyone's feeling this globally. And the shift that we're making now, I think, that the army made when this most recent war started, you know, around 2001, 2003 timeframe. So they were forced into this evolution toward really like leaving the industrial conventional kind of methodology a little bit in the back burner for looking toward adaptability and empowering people on the ground. So I think that that's something that we're starting to see now happen in, in corporate America because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, some common understanding that everyone's going through something, even if it's a little different. Um, I think it definitely has raised uh, awareness of the importance of empathy and then also psychological safety, because as you mentioned, if people need to act, you don't need them to stand back and wait for permission because it might cause waves or things like that. Allowing people to move forward and act on a common goal based on their role uh, in relation to that common goal is really, really important. And I wanted to share too, Eric, and I want to appreciate you for your service, of course, to the country and your stories are very powerful and compelling. So thank you for the sacrifices that you've made in that regard. And we appreciate you and the service you've given to the country. I, I appreciate that, especially as we're looking at Veterans Day is, is just around the corner. And I was actually, I was asked, why do I share what I shared? And frankly, that caught me off guard because it just opened up a part of my why that happened to be exposed. And part of sharing this passion, I think you kind of hear the energy that I get when I'm talking about it, is one, I want to share my experiences that I had. And then I want to also share the stories of my brothers and sisters as well. You know, those who aren't with us any longer, uh, keeping their memories and, and, and sharing their successes and, and how they conducted themselves, I think is a powerful motivator as well to share these stories and to every time I do it, I mean, I'm, I'm as vulnerable and as nervous as it could possibly come despite my presence inside is, you know, in that moment again, and in the, in, in the, all of those moments is a scared person of vulnerability because you're back in that moment again, and you don't know those risky situations are just something to be respected, I, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And that's just redefining courage as well. Showing vulnerability, uh, being authentic with your experiences and, and sharing those experiences is tremendously important and brave. And I think it's a great thing to demonstrate for folks out there who think um, it's more courageous sometimes to, to hold these things in. But sharing this information helps. Sometimes it opens a door for other people to share their experiences as well, and which helps all of us work together and become stronger. We talk back to human connection and looking out for one another, working together towards common goals being authentic and being vulnerable are really important to building those real strong, powerful human connections. And like we talked about before, bringing teams together and you alluded to kind of what I call the magic sauce sometimes where I say you, that's how you find gold in teams. When teams are working well together, they feel the energy from one another. It feels amazing. You know, we're on a well-functioning team. You know, when you have synergy, you know, when you're achieving these great audacious goals and we're, we're working together at their best. And I think some of these things that you're talking about are really how do you get to the bottom of bringing people together, building stronger connections so they work together and find another thing you alluded to was purpose. What is their personal purpose? What is their per personal mission? And then how do you bring that all together to create this magic in a high-functioning team? There's a lot there, right? Yeah. It's the magic sauce of those daily interactions. And what is this, the subculture within that organization? And what is the leader espousing? And it's not the corporate jargon that are the pictures in the, you know, the, the coffee break room. It's the actions and behaviors. You know, people hear words, but they see behaviors. And when you see the authenticity of someone who is leading by example, mm. who is reaching out to ask how their people are doing, and genuinely care. Someone who remembers, you know, little details about people, you, you ask to go to lunch, you know, just a little, I mean, it's not a big magic formula that it's like, if you do ABC, it's going to equal XYZ. It's those daily interactions of, of knowing your people and trusting your people yeah. and allowing those moments to happen. I, I'll, I'll reframe it. And as the leader, you should be responsible for facilitating those moments for people to engage with each other 
and to put work down and to put policy down and to engage with each other just a little bit. I know you have work to do and it can't all be touchy-feely stuff, I understand. Um, but especially now with COVID has exacerbated people's fatigue and, and people's micro connections are kind of cut short. And I think humans are animals. We're pack animals and we thrive better together when we're connected and communicating. And now more than ever, these small cultural nuances and how these leaders are engaging with their teams and, and not monitoring, hey, are you at your computer for eight hours a day? And I have this device that's going to see if your mouse is moving. That's unconscionable to me. That's like that's a, an environment I could never want. To, I'd rather go back to war than be in a, an environment under a manager who wants to lead by policies and procedures and in kind of you know that factory worker mentality. That's not a, a function of empowerment. Yeah, I think also to that point, you know, we have parents that came from a certain generation of corporate life and requirements and how best to scale essentially. And so putting policies out there, it, it can be helpful. But then, you know, if, if the army can do it and, and have subcultures behave certain ways that optimize where the, you know, where the company's really trying to go, it ends up being a little bit more like flexible. I'm really proud to be a part of this time in the world that we are trying to help engage people to to change this concept of what we had and hold their hands really like really you know see each other through this moment and um infuse these moments of learning more about each other and obviously those can happen on a Zoom call where you're giving some time to each other to say oh I just watched your daughter run across the screen what's her name and things like that um that can obviously happen then as well but we're really happy to be right in, in the midst of this time period where we feel like we can really bring to the table some opportunities for people to see each other differently. Oh, absolutely. And sometimes just reframing it in a way that actually is quite natural to us as humans, um, based on kind of how we're built and how we thrive, that sometimes we set aside, especially in corporate environments, and we really kind of get back to how we're built our human nature, and then also um, the importance. And one of the things that you brought up Eric, earlier when you're talking about, you know, monitoring activities on laptops, trust, having organizations where people trust one another is so critical. Right. And I can imagine going back to what you've talked about in your stories from the military. Again, trust is critical in that environment where lives are on the line is that you must trust each other to make the right decisions, but you also must trust that you have each other's back. Without that, teams really do fall apart. And without that, look at the the nature of our missions. And I think that's just the ultimate truth teller. You can't fake experience. And if you are unprepared or untrained and you're in in a moment of chaos in this thing called war, lives are lost. And that's not something I, I want to live with. I can't. It, 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 it can't. You can't second guess those sorts of things. Mm. So as we deliver these these messages and they translate these stories, I, I use storytelling. I think that's the most overlooked but most compelling method of communication, and that's where we've really focused a lot of this. The message is by way of sharing stories of some of these combat missions, and I analyze them in a way where it's relatable and, and transferable. Says, "Oh wow, like that's how that's done," or how did you do that? And we, we sort of peel it back and it, it's always, it always comes down to the human aspect of it. And do you feel safe? And can you trust that person that when you turn to, you know, run between a building or you have to move to another position because the enemy found you, your brother's going to have your back. And when you have that feeling and you know that someone has your back, 
more importantly, you know that 50 other guys have your back. The empowerment and confidence that that fills your entire body and soul with, again, is a, is a transformative physical experience. And that's where that energy and that magnetism comes from. And when you see a winning team and they're all smiles, they're having fun. And in one of the stories I share, I, I'm, I'm so blessed to have some actual video footage. Um, it's not classified, so it's okay. And in this, in literally the, in the middle of a, one of the most hellish days that I've ever experienced, mm-hmm. we share in this scream and jubilation and laughter um, at a really strategic moment. And I have a camera shot of seeing the faces that you can't fake these sorts of things. And when you see them and you see people smiling and laughing in the face of adverse and overwhelming odds, there's something there. And that's where, again, the, the passion to share these stories and to communicate the ways to do these sorts of things is, um, it's a powerful, it's a powerful driver. And if, if I'm on camera right now, you're seeing a smile ear to ear because I can't not smile about the, the light bulb moments of empowering other folks and people out there. It's a really transformative experience. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people look toward military and people who've been on teams, especially sports teams, or maybe even, um, musicals and things like that. And there's certainly teams. I think Hamilton is one of the best examples of a, a team with insane chemistry, you know, at least that the opening cast. So I think if there are people on your team that have had great team experiences, you know, it's one thing to be on a team. It's another to be a part of a a winning team uh, and, and asking them, what are the qualities that you're, that you feel like we could infuse here? I think that there's a lot left on the table that we could be doing about bringing those things to the forefront. I know for me being on a team, various creative teams and, and the advertising world, uh, I know exactly what right looks like on a team. And I would love the uh, opportunity many times to, to just go demonstrate that so everyone else can see this is how our team behaves. And it, it kind of gives the other people a little model to go off of. Yeah, absolutely. That's really going to bring forward that magic. And, and to your point, kind of giving them some kind of tactical resources or framework in order to make that happen so they can achieve that magic. So I think once you feel it, kind of weaved in our conversation, once you feel that magic of a highly effective team and you feel the power of human connection, you feel the power of empowering other people, you definitely would not want to go back to whatever you had prior to that. You want to maintain that magic and that feeling of connection because there's a lot there in order to drive teams forward into the future. So I know usually I'll ask my guests questions about the future and I last minute, and as my listeners know, sometimes I change questions up a little bit because it comes to my mind and I'm slightly impulsive, but <laughs> We're good love, company. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Awesome. That's why we get along so well, but I want to pose a question to the both of you and maybe Alexis, we'll start with you and then, and then we'll hear from Eric. So when you think about the future, a lot, you know, a lot of times I'll ask folks what they're concerned or what they're optimistic about, but I'd be really interested to know your thoughts around if you were to able to take something today and transform it to a better state in the future, what would that be and why? Technology's impact on decision-making, research's impact on decision-making. I think we leave a lot on the table when we use that as our primary source of decision making, uh, you know, in especially the advertising world, but I know all industries, it can get very tempting to allow that to become the main driver for what you're going to center your decision making on. Uh, I know even for me as a human being, I'd love to make decisions more rationally and go like, oh, I did it because uh, this, this told me that I should go this way. 
so what I'm getting at is, and and what one of my favorite things that you discuss on your on all of your podcasts is this human nature aspect. And I know that from my life, I went through some difficult times where I, I was dealing with some mind games for a while, even in toxic work situations. You know, talk about corporate gaslighting and that kind of thing happening in various areas, and you really start to lose your own sense of trusting yourself. And so, you know, where's decision making, where's behavior, where's any of this stuff if you don't trust yourself and your gut and your intuition? So I think that when Eric says you can't fake experience, especially as you get more mature in the workforce and in life experiences and family, that you sometimes get a gut feeling and you trust that more than anything that happens. Any kind of data that you can get, any kind of rationality that you can get. And I thank goodness for behavioral economics being a thing now, because I think that that's extremely helpful in this argument. But for me, it's it's about that that data research and those things. I think that they should certainly shape your decision making. But I really like the idea of intuition, gut, and your life experiences helping you to come to a conclusion at the end of the day, you know, with your counterparts. I think that that should just be part of the weight in there. Yeah, I love that. You you were speaking my language when you're talking about the, you know technology making decisions on our behalf. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, Eric, how about you? Uh, I'm going to take a stab in a, in a little different direction. I'll, I'll give a slight context. Uh, at the Asymmetric Warfare Group, our job was to increase soldier survivability by a material or non-material solution. It's said as simply as I can. And so if we did a good job, soldiers came home. If we did a bad job, maybe they didn't. And so that's a, that's a strong, strong motivator. And we found that we could train individual units and leaders, but when those people left, so did their policies and so did their leadership and their influence. And someone else clicked in there and, and maybe that, that training went away and it went back to policies and procedures. And so the AWG had to nest itself with training and doctrine command. So we impacted the entry level soldiers and we were able to influence a new way of thinking by way of when they first came into the organization. We changed how the army trained and developed its soldiers. And we also did the same thing for the ROTC Reserve Officer Training Corps that commissions 85% of the officers in the army. We changed how they developed their leadership program as well. And I think the most proud piece for me is my alma mater. Um, we were able to influence leadership development at the United States Military Academy. And that program is still, even though I've, I've since left, that program uh, is still in effect. So I share that context with my big, hairy, audacious idea. Given this global pandemic and the state of the world, I would love to see the education system for our children transform and change and shift away from the remnants of this nine to five factory worker management mentality where it's, you know, hyper standardized tests. You better sit in your desk for eight hours a day. We're not going to get hands on things. We're not going to experience, you know, woodworking shops or home economics or being outside in the woods or real basic human things that I think were overlooked for a little bit. I listen to my kids in school now and, and they're doing meditation. They're doing mindfulness. They're doing these humanized things where they can connect with themselves to become more self-aware. And the, the residual benefit and amplification of that is they're better connected to their their classmates to the left and to the right. And if they're able to spark that awareness at an educational level, and that is something that they're ingrained in day in and day out, 
and that's what they're taught. And that's just the way that our societies can conduct ourselves. I think that we can hopefully in a generation or sooner bridge the divide that our country has fallen to by way of technology and, and by way of maybe perhaps social media. And we as adults have allowed that to divide us. And I'm not sure how that'll be fixed. And I'm not foregoing our generation, but if we can train and educate our children to overcome these things, to use them more responsibly and to connect with each other more humanly, I think future generations are going to benefit greatly. And that also ties into, you know, a really optimistic point of view that we're having these conversations and from education and children to corporate America, I'm, I'm eternally optimistic and continue these conversations until my last breath, to be honest with you. Mm. Yeah, that's another topic I love to think about, too, is the future of education. You guys found some topics that I also highly relate to and I also think are very important. But when you think about how we're building future generations for success, understanding that they're the ones that will carry us forward are tremendously important. We think about the evolution of education and really preparing our students for the mindsets they need to have in this ever-changing world that we live in. So fantastic points. And this has been an amazing conversation. So I want everyone to go check out the Alpha Echo Project at alphaechoproject.com. And you can find all sorts of information out there about Eric's experiences, about Alexis's background, what they can do to help you and your organization, get your teams to work together more effectively. And so Eric and Alexis, thank you so much for this conversation. I've really enjoyed having you on the show. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure for us. And, you know, I'll miss us connecting on on various calls leading up to this. It, I'm glad that I can find you again on these podcasts because it's really wonderful to listen to your point of view and uh, all the learning that you're bringing across many industries. I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate your, your amplifying these messages and you're having these conversations and pe- people are starting to have these hard conversations and, and listen, listen in. And there's a multitude of ways to tackle these these problems and these issues. And, you know, we're here and ready and excited to uh, to partner and to collaborate and figure out the future here. Fantastic. Well, keep up the great work and you guys can talk to me anytime you want. Anytime you want. <laughs> great. Thank you so much. Eric and Alexis provide important perspectives on the critical elements of high-functioning teams. By considering teams that are working at the elite level, when lives are on the line, it drives home the critical importance of honesty, human connection, and trust. If we consider what we need to do in order to maintain the best interests of those to the left and the right of us during the most challenging times, when we're under fire, it requires us to take a deeper look at what's truly important. Although many of us may not be in a position to protect the lives of those around us while protecting our own, that perspective may give us a deeper understanding of our human nature. We are creatures that thrive when we belong to a group, when we have a strong connection with those around us, when we have trust that they have our back just as we have theirs. It is when we work together as a collective unit toward a common goal that we work at our best and when we achieve the greatest outcomes. So. Think of those around you, even if virtually, those that are working with you towards a common goal. Look to your left and look to your right. Who do you see? Consider their presence. Consider their role in achieving that greater goal. Consider your role and what they trust you to accomplish to achieve that goal. 
Regardless of your objective, that connection is critically important. The higher the stakes, the more critical the connection. There is something powerful in how we connect to one another, and certainly a powerful lesson that we can learn from teams on the front line, in the military, in healthcare, or other critical roles that hold the goal of helping to protect and defend others. We can all learn something from them, regardless of our work. Your mission is critical, and the time is now. So, go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about Eric, Alexis, and the Alpha Echo Project, visit alphaechoproject.com. That's alphaechoproject.com. Before you go, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review Humans Now and Then. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Episode notes can be found at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.